Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Mark Heilman, who is the lead guitarist for the legendary California-based deathcore outfit, Suicide Silence. Over a long and uh, prosperous career, Mark's put out six albums with Suicide Silence, hitting the rock billboard charts in the US, the UK, Germany, and Australia, among many, many others. It's got a very impressive career, and when I think of bands doing it the right way. I feel like his band did it the right way. They were known before they were signed. When you hear about all the right things you need to do before getting a record deal or a team, his band did it. And it's very interesting to talk to someone who actually has that kind of experience. So let's get on with it. Mark Heilman, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. What the fuck is going on, guys? Hey, <laughs> hey John Brown. John <laughs> Brown. I, I, I literally, I, I think of you and I think of like the tragedy of our friendship because we like spent this amazing tour together and then literally like never saw each other like ever again, like once, maybe. Yeah, once. It was a download festival. When was this? I was Mark's guitar tech for two tours. One was like unofficial and then the other one was official. True. How were you unofficially his guitar tech? I was teching for another band. Ah, okay. And then I saw that they didn't have any techs. I was like, do you need a hand? And he offered me five quid a day <laughs> to do it. And I was like, no, I'll just fucking oh, do wow. it. Oh, wow. That's so generous, dude. <laughs> I'll just do it. I love that. Taking care of your crew. Fucking, that's totally something I would do. Like, let me just buy you a beer <laughs> every day. One. Not more than one, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did actually buy me a few drinks. Do you remember that? Um, we went to this nightclub in Birmingham. Uh, sorry, I said Birmingham then because I'm surrounded by Americans. Birmingham, Birmingham yeah, I know. And uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's where Dan Kenny fell down the stairs and didn't drop a sip of his drink. Oh, I don't know if you remember that. It, was that Dan Kenny or was that me? <laughs> <laughs> I think we both fell down the stairs that night. <laughs> it might have done, yeah. <laughs> was that, was that, what, what tour was that? Was that the Devil Driver Behemoth tour? That was the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were at this like metal club, like three-story metal club in, yeah, it was Birmingham. I remember I fell down the stairs that night too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like our, our time together was just like that was some of the most just brilliantly drunk 
hilarious times of my life. Like when we were, we were on a bus with (laughs) after the burial or yeah, it was after the burial. Yeah. And uh, bleed from within. God. And just like staying up every night, drinking as much as we can, like discussing like just everything about Opeth to Pantera to Meshuggah, just like in depth. (laughs) It was the, it was the greatest time of my life. It was really good. I actually, yeah, it was, it was really good fun. I really, really enjoyed being his tech. It was very fun. Did you say that was like 2010 or something? Uh, it was 2011. Ah, okay. The the second tour, the official one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually forgot that you were my unofficial tech on that tour. Who were you teching for on that tour? Malefice. Malefice. That's right. That's right. I'm sure you have more of a memory of this, but the time where I was like half naked and blacked out and I, and no one could get me to move <laughs> and I was yes. bleeding, I think, I think, I think my elbow was cut for some reason. Yep. I can explain this entire I wanna, story. I want to hear this story again. Cause I haven't heard it in so long. Cause I definitely don't remember. <laughs> I've never heard it. So. Okay. So we, we were on tour after the burial bleed from within and Suicide Silence had just played at Grass Pop Festival. And that is where it all started going wrong for Mark. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so he got exceedingly drunk at Grass Pop, tried to get singer of the Pretty Reckless's phone number, and the manager told him to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) I think that happened to me twice. I think that's not the first time that happened. I think it happened to me later in my life. (laughs) Hey man, persistence, you know? Yeah. Then we had to get on the, uh, on the ferry over to England for the next show, which I can't remember where it was, but anyway, at the point we got to customs at Calais, Mark decided to throw a wine bottle as high in the air as he could outside of the customs and it smashed all over the ground. So that's as you should, dude, as you should. (laughs) And then we decided that it was best for everyone on the boat that Mark stayed on the bus while the boat was uh, going over the uh, channel. And when we returned to the bus, everything on the bus was destroyed, including Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it kind of dangerous to leave someone in the vehicle in those ferries? Trust me, how Mark was, it was more dangerous to have him on the ship. (laughs) (laughs) You weighed the risks. Yeah, basically. Better to let him drown. But the only way we could get him to go to bed was to sing Pantera to him. Not even play Pantera, just <laughs> sing it to him. <laughs> he, he wouldn't move otherwise. It was amazing. <laughs> I think there's a picture of you, like with, with my arm around you, I have no shirt on and I'm bleeding. And, and I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but you're like dragging me upstairs. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you guys saved my life that night, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I would have like jumped over the edge of the ferry or something if I was on that, on that boat. It would have been chaos. So yeah, we decided that we did the best choice and the boat, the boat didn't sink. So Mark's still here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like that was kind of like a a standard level of, uh, of drunk on that tour though. Like, I feel like it was pretty intense. Like the whole time we were all going pretty hard. Well, I was maybe, I don't know about you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I really know when I say, I don't know about how you guys were. I really don't have any recollection. (laughs) You You definitely won. Definitely won by that night. Definitely. 
But yeah, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty intensely drunk tour. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you guys just never saw each other since. No, that I mean we saw each other at Download very very briefly, but just since then our, our paths have never crossed. There was also the brief time at Nam a few years ago, like three or four years ago, yes. but it was super brief. It was like we walked around for a little bit. We were with like again, we were like with Trent from After the Burial. I actually think that was one of the last times I saw Justin. It would have been, yep. Which goddamn. Yeah, there's a picture of all of us and like Wes and like Julian Vi. That was one yeah, one of the that was the last time I saw you, but it was yeah like five minutes. We haven't yeah, even we haven't even got to share was, a pickleback yeah. since then, you know? <laughs> Not one pickleback. Yeah. <laughs> what is it with pickles and you, Brown? Like, are they, before we started, Brown was saying that he fucking hates pickles, but like, are they different in England or do they just not exist in England? Like, what's the deal? I just don't like them. It just immediately uh-huh. reminds me of the taste of a McDonald's cheeseburger. And that is the overall taste of a pickle. I mean, you've tried mcdonald's you know that taste (laughs) and i don't like mcdonald's it reminds me of the only thing that i can eat when there's nothing else to eat when i'm on tour that's why i don't like it i think that pickles all over the world are more like pickled cucumbers and they're just different which a a pickle is a pickled cucumber that is what a pickle is but when you have them in america there's something just more dilly and it's like, there's more of a flavor to it. But whenever you're eating them anywhere else, I kind of understand. It's like, it's not the same as like, like uh, this, this is not an endorsement of Grillo's pickles, but if you haven't had Grillo's pickles, <laughs> motherfuck, dude, Grillo's pickles will fucking rip your face off, dude. They're so good. Is it because they're GMO pickles? Is that what it is? No, they're hundred percent organic. Like there's like garlic and dill and, and bay leaf, like inside the juice. It's not like this nuclear fucking weird fucking fluorescent pickle juice. Like, <laughs> like what the fuck? Like, Vlasic pickles or whatever, just standard fucking pickles. What the fuck color is that juice? That is not real. Like, what is that shit? That might be your piss, Mark. <laughs> it does look kind of like Mountain Dew a little bit. Speaking of Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew also, it mixes well with whiskey. <laughs> a man with a lazy eye and a limp told me that uh, Mountain Dew was... Did you try it, though? Oh, dude. Well, not only was this dude with a lazy eye and a limp, he wasn't just some dude. He was a... Uh, sound guy for a life once lost. And when we were touring with them in like 2007, oh, okay. <laughs> which if Sean Kenny hears this, he's like, God damn it. Why are you calling me a fucking lazy eyed limpy person? <laughs> but, but Sean, Sean Kenny, Sean Kenny's a legend. Shit. He's, this is totally, this is totally going to get back to him and let it be whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, but he drank it all tour long, dude. He drank it all tour long. Oh, I love that band though. A life once oh, lost. Yeah. They were like one of those bands that should have made it and never did. It was Snake Sustain, dude. There's never been a better stage name than Snake Sustain, you know? <laughs> Man, speaking about that era, something I've always wanted to like uh, talk to one of you guys about, there was something really, really cool in that area that bands would get big before they got signed, which is how I learned that it should happen, but it's uh, actually pretty rare you know usually bands get signed and then labels just shit them out and hope that something happens but you guys had it going on it was like you guys and Joffrey Cowboy and then eventually Whitechapel all just kind of had it going on before label the label thing happened what made you like decide to even sign like why did you need to 
we were children, you know, well, we didn't know what we were doing at that point. You know, I think if I could go back in time and like communicate with myself, I probably would have been like, hey, you know, you could, you could probably do this all yourself at this point, or at least for some more years, build it up. It was MySpace at the time. MySpace acted as this huge platform that you could put music out and you could be, you know, literally all over the world so easily. And for us, at least, I say this and I'm pretty sure it's true. I think that Suicide's, because it was before I was in the band and I watched this happen. Suicide Silence was the first band to put a music video on MySpace. So the Family Guy clip and them playing at the Showcase Theater, I think that was the first music video ever on MySpace, which is really what catapulted the band to having like a worldwide recognition for anything. And uh, why we signed, I think it's like, you know, you're young and for us, Century Media was interested in us. And it's like, you know, I was I was a fan of Century Media. I used to order from the Century Media, you know, uh, whatever catalog when I was young. So like having them offer us anything was just super awesome. So it's kind of like, you want to sign a deal, you know? I don't know. I don't know. You just, when you're young, you're like, why not sign the fucking deal? We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Also, I think that like in that early 2000s to mid 2000s, there was still that element of it's not completely switched over to the internet yet. Because obviously, you know, the, the new metal era had come and they were still offering huge advances at that point. Like just- and That was the, ta- the tail end of the good days with deals. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think that's what it was. Yeah. The sign thing, the unsigned thing with selling out these huge venues, it happened in the UK as well. And MySpace was definitely a huge factor in that. Like just as an example, I think the main band in the UK that I can think of that did it was Enter Shikari. If you guys are familiar with that band, um, they sold out the Astoria in London before they got signed. I remember this story. I remember hearing that. Just being like, holy shit. It's only the second band that's, that's ever happened for. We were touring and releasing music before we were ever signed or even had a real agent, we were doing all kinds of shit. Like same thing. And there was all these bands, like remember like with broken teeth and like all these MySpace bands that it's like you waited for them to tour because you knew about them because of the internet, but then maybe they never even toured. Maybe they were just one dude. I don't even know. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of them were one dude. Yeah. Well, the one dude band, it was definitely, and I think still is a thing. Oh yeah. It's absolutely a thing. Do you remember, uh, do you remember Jeffree Star as well? Like MySpace, that's how he got his name. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, now look at now look <laughs> at him. Can you forget? But I remember seeing him at shows and it was like, I used to think of him as like a famous dude before he was even famous. It's just like, oh yeah, he's obviously, you know, he's Jeffree Star from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about you guys that made you think that it could work before the label? Like you just said, a lot of bands... You'd know about them on the internet, but they wouldn't do anything. Like what was different about you guys? All it was with us was that we had like a hundred percent drive to work. We knew we wanted to get in the van. We wanted a tour. We also wanted to smash the, the label of being a MySpace band. When you're labeled a MySpace band at that time, it's just like, there was a stigma. Yeah. It's like, Hey, no, like we play a shit ton of shows local. And like, we are a real band. Like we just happen to be on MySpace, just like every other band. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we got offers to go play in the UK in 2006, We had no idea what we were doing, but we were like, yeah, well, let's buy tickets and let's bring, you know, our 5152s. Well, like literally we brought (laughs) our heads with us to like our first tour in the UK, had no idea what we were doing. 
And, and that pretty much we were just, we we were just out there to just do it, you know, just go play any show we possibly could. We started the network, started to just meet people. That's where we met Ash Avildsen, who owns Sumerian. He was our first booking agent in the U.S. We went and saw Reflux, which was uh, Tosin Abasi's first band. Uh, and Ash, Ash's band too. Ash was the singer. We went to go see them play to talk to Ash to see if he would be our booking agent. I want to say that that was that was 2005 or maybe early 2006. Yeah, I mean, we were just in it to like see who's working and see who's putting together. It was the scene wasn't really like thick yet. Like it was just getting started. There was there was bands from Orange County like bleeding through and Atreyu and that was that scene. But like our scene, which was just more brutal, like we we could see it. We saw it was it was coming up all over the world. There was there was different things going on. And we're just like, we got to we just got to hit this super hard. And I mean, I dropped out of high school. I was in high school at that time. I was just like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go play, doing play it. guitar and yeah, put <laughs> all my money into it. Literally anything that I, if I ever worked or ever made a dollar, everything was going to the band or gear. It was just like everything. So you guys had the collective idea of getting as far as humanly possible. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm just saying, cause some bands don't admit that. I think some bands are like, we're just in it because we love music. We don't care about that kind of stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes musicians won't admit that. But anytime I talk to people who have made it happen, it's pretty clear that that's what they wanted from the beginning. Yeah. Like, I think it was everybody kind of had their own personal goals as far as like making music a career, you know, and everybody still kind of has their own, you know, this is what I want the most. Um, for me, like, I remember just kind of discussing it. I remember, I mean, talking to Mitch, like having this conversation with him because uh, I had only been in the band for not even a full year once we started like getting, you know, offers to go on tour and do all kinds of stuff. And it was like this conversation of like, hey, like you're really you're you're in this like you're not going to quit like when it gets to be too much work, you know, like because we want to we want to do this for the rest of our lives. And I'm just like, dude, like this is this is all I want to do. And I, and talking about all I care about is being able to pay my bills. I don't need to be rich. I don't even need to be famous. I just want to be able to survive just off of music. I was 18 when we really started uh, touring a lot. How long did it take before you could survive just for music? Well, we ate shit for probably from <laughs> 2006, 2007, 2008, half of it, we were finally at the point where we were able to not be reinvesting like all of our money. Could you describe eating shit? <laughs> like, what does it taste like? No, I'm just kidding. It depends what the person was eating before, uh, you know. If, 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 <laughs> yeah, because there's varieties. Yeah, you know, if they have a nutrient-dense diet, you know, it could actually be pretty flavorful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say we would go out on tour for like, we used to tour insane. So we would tour like three tours back to back, not even joking. Like we would tour for like 100 days and we would all, you know, agree to pay ourselves like, like a, a thousand bucks for three months, you know, <laughs> cell phone bills, basically. Yeah. I mean, that that's like totally true, but it was because we, at the time, like we didn't, we still didn't really know what we were doing. And we were like, we needed to, we had, we had to buy merch and like, we, it was all getting reinvested so that everything we were doing was just building up and building up. And then middle of 2008 was a year after the cleansing came out and we were touring so steady 
And then we finally hired a, a, a business manager and our business manager helped <laughs> us figure it all out. We finally were able to like do like monthly salary kind of thing and actually be able to live off of music. And I remember that being like a thing too. Everybody would ask us in interviews back in the day, like, do you guys work jobs or like, do you guys have anything else that you do? Or is this like all you do? And, and like, even that was like a stigma of being like a young band that had like success. It's like, wait a second, you, you only do this. You don't, you don't have to work. And like people in the scene, like almost guilt tripping you for like being successful. It's like, well, Hey man, we put our fucking time in, you know, that is kind of a weird thing in the metal scene. I've always wondered why that's looked down on. Cause the other scenes, like, you know, the hip hop scene or whatever, entrepreneurs and people who do well, that's like a badge of honor. Basically that's that the better you do, the better you're considered. But in metal, you've sold out. It's not exactly like that. Like, obviously people look up to the bigger bands, like who doesn't look up to Slipknot or whatever, but there's still like a thing about if you do well, it can, it can sometimes cause social problems. Like there, there will be some guilt tripping and stuff. Yeah. It's unfortunate that like the way that metal is, it's kind of like if you're too cool, like you're not cool anymore. Like it's like you're cool when when you're 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 in like a smaller clique and you're on the underground. But it's like once you have too much success, especially in the U.S., like you're on to the next, the newer band that no one knows about. And they're cool because it's like your secret kind of thing. We saw that a lot, you know, when we were first coming up and we still get it like. It's we, we got the people that only like the cleansing or people that are like, oh, you guys are never going to be as good as your EP. And it's just I think I think that echoes in it with every band. Like there's just those people all the way up to Metallica. All they care about is kill them all. You know, just go listen to that record. Yeah, it's always going to be there, dude. Yeah. Yeah. It's always what I say, you know, with anybody that has anything, you know, to say about newer music by us or whatever. It's like, Hey man, like our old music's still on the menu. You know, you could still choose that <laughs> if that's what you want. And you still play it live as well, right? Oh fuck. Yeah, dude, we got to play that shit. And that's also the funnier thing is we play, we play live sets and, and our old songs aren't even the songs that go over the best. Really? It's usually black crown era stuff. You can't stop me stuff. We haven't even got to play any of our new records music live, like at all, hardly. So we'll see how that goes, but. <laughs> oh, just uh, for people listening, because, you know, people in the future will be hearing this. It's May 29th, 2020. So we're all locked down, so to speak. Oh yeah, that's currently happening still. How's that been for you? I don't mind. I don't really mind. Yeah, I don't either. I stay productive. I like to, I like to sit at home and play guitar. I love getting cold call FaceTime calls from friends or like groups of friends where it's, I look down at my phone. It's just like 20 people's names that I know. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's hang out. Like that's, I would have been, I would have been annoyed at that if I wasn't locked down. Like why the fuck are all these people FaceTiming right now without like checking <laughs> to see what I'm doing? Like, but no, I mean, I've, I've stayed busy. I've been getting more guitar lessons and giving guitar lessons. And I started a Patreon and, you know, having a lot of fun with that. And yeah. And then just the ideas that come from being on lockdown, like we're doing this virtual world tour, which is going to be insane. Like, cause everybody's, everybody's doing the live, live for the internet, like one stream only, you know, just tune in. And this is, this is the stream. And then we were thinking like, how do we make this better? Like, how do we do this for specific people? Like make it more like a tour and we figured out how to, it's called geofencing, how to geofence a stream ticket 
So we can actually go on a a multi-stop stream tour. So if you live in Dallas, we're going to sell a ticket that's geofenced in like a 200 mile radius to Dallas. And when we play this show, we're actually live playing for Dallas, talking about the last time we were there. This is just for you. It only exists once. And we're doing it for 39 shows. We're going to do all the shows that got canceled because of coronavirus first, which is U.S., a little bit of Canada, South America, some Europe and the UK and Asia. We're doing it time zone specific. So if you're in London, we're going to be playing for you at 7 p.m. And we're basically playing seven o'clock like everywhere all over the world, which is also what is missing from these streams. Some people are just streaming at, you know, noon their time, but that's, you know, yep. three in the morning in Asia or something. So for Australia, if you're doing Australia, you will be doing it in the middle of the night. We've actually already discussed it with the place that we're renting one location and we're doing it all from this soundstage, which we've got. We have a film crew and a film lighting crew. So we're, we're treating it more like a, like a live music video, live performance. It's not going to be like we're trying to recreate a concert. We're going to be making something super way more just suited for viewing on your computer. Hopefully you're plugging into a a set of nice like studio monitors or a sound system because it's going to sound fucking sick. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we already talked with the place we're renting. We're going to be able to use it at any point in time. They love the idea and how we're doing this. It's third encore, which is like this massive rehearsal studio in Burbank where, you know, arena and stadium tours go to practice, set up their whole, uh, you know, lighting package and rehearse without going Mm -hmm. to the, to the venue. Um, just kind of like where shine down or something would go like if they wanted to rehearse totally do a full arena basically set up. Yeah. If anyone doesn't know what that is, there are rehearsal rooms where bands can take in their entire arena gear and just set it all up to make sure it works. Like bands like Muse and stuff like that. Big boy rehearsal rooms, basically. Yeah. We're going above our pay grade in this uh, location here. And, and, uh, <laughs> but but uh, Punching up. I'm really excited about it because we've been putting so much energy into it. And like, if anybody, you know, knows Suicide Silence and knows us and just like, the way we are, like we're making, we're going to be taking over, like imagine it like Suicide Silence TV. Like we're going to have pre-recorded skits that are more like, like Mad TV or Saturday Night Live kind of stuff. That's, that's Suicide Silence making all that. I, I, I can't wait for people to see some of this shit. Like we already have made a bunch of them. They're so fucking funny. We uh, <laughs> can't say everything. We have fake sponsors, fake commercials, like all kinds of crazy shit. Um, Suicide Silence goes jackass. <laughs> dude, it's going to be so fucking good. Like I was just, I was just filming some stuff yesterday. We have a green screen and, and we're just going insane with it. So for an hour and a half, we're just, we're going to be pummeling you with just hundred percent hilarious shit, super brutal you know, performance by us. Uh, it's going to look so good. And then, and then we're doing a, uh, like a live Q and a for the second half of it, where we can actually, anybody that's watching, we can actually, uh, you know, video call them in and have them on the stream with us and answer questions. And it would have never happened if it wasn't for coronavirus. And, and I'm thinking like, how much is this like ready player one situation happening right now? Like, is this the future now? Like, are we going to get, are we going to be able to just be like, Hey, you know what? Like we could go play, uh, you know, in, in Gaza, but we could actually just, uh, stream you a show now and you can, you can still <laughs> enjoy this show, you know, like, 
so I have this theory about what's happening now is that it's just accelerating shit that was already going to happen. Like for instance, movie theaters, they were already on the way out. It's not like they were doing well and then coronavirus happened and suddenly they're not. It's just shit that was already on the way out. Even Maybe it was going to take 10 years. It's just accelerating the process. And I think, uh, I'm sure you agree that bands probably tour a little too much. They wear down markets and they hit the same place way too often. And there's places you just can't go for, like you just said, Gaza. Like, you're not going to play a show in Gaza. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> no, not happening. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure you've got fans there. And also, it cuts down on having to pay for that overweight charge with the airline companies. It means that you can go home to bed once you've done the stream. And yeah. not have to sleep on someone's floor. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually pretty amazing, isn't it? Imagine if you like did half the tours you would normally do where you spend 20 hours flying to then sleep badly for a month and then you can just do it at your house. I really think that if it's successful, I could imagine bands, you could get international bands that are doing stream sets, but say you play anywhere remote, you know, far, you could get, you could put together a local package and then stream, you know, international bands with live bands from the area, you know, like it doesn't sound ideal at all. It's obviously kind of like a response to what's going on right now, but I mean, it's very possible you could put together something super entertaining and be streaming something that's just for that one night only that show. And especially if there's cameras on the crowd and then, you know, a, you know, virtual meet and greet kind of thing. It's exciting to, I mean, maybe more exciting to me because I'm just like neck deep and trying to figure out all this shit, but <laughs> it's just super exciting. And it's just such a different, uh, a different thing. And fuck playing a social distance show. That seems like being a local band again. Yeah. Oh yeah. No one wants, no one wants to hang out. <laughs> Can you imagine two yeah. meters between <laughs> each person? <laughs> Have you seen that meme of like local bands before coronavirus? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what would be funny though to see at the uh, the gig? Have you guys ever heard of Zorbing? What is that? Sounds weird. It's where you run down a hill and you're in like an inflatable bubble. Oh God, that's Zorbing? <laughs> oh, that. You know, yeah, Zorbing. Yeah. Imagine if that's how you did circle pits at future shows, that you had this entire outfit around you so that you maintained the two meter distance and it was just like Zorbing in the crowd. <laughs> well, okay. That sounds fun. And then add, and then make it like a bubble party and just add a bunch of suds and have everybody sliding around and exactly yeah I mean yeah we could yeah that's not, that sounds like a good time it's not so bad just out of curiosity because I know I've talked to a lot of people whose tours and shit got canceled who are just depressed and acting like the world is over and now we're talking to you and you're like actively been working on how to make the best of the situation, being creative about it. Obviously you're stoked about it. How long was it between when shit went down and when you guys basically kicked into high gear to figure out how to make this work? Really the, this whole virtual tour idea didn't come about until it was less than three weeks ago. That's pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once we had the idea, we're like, 
we love this idea. The other odd thing about it is it's just this unique set of people that are in our crew that like it just so happened that our sound guy of seven years uh, retired from touring for a little bit and worked on this massive live stream podcast. And then we also have a, a, a crew of people that did the Mitch Memorial DVD that are all film people. So like we have these people in our crew. So once we had the idea, it was like, oh, shit. All right, let's think about this for like a day. And then we figured out, okay, this is possible. And we announced it like two days after we came up with the idea. And we've been, you know, on the daily putting it together. We didn't want to do quarantine streams from our jam room or like things from our bedroom and things like this, because to us, and this is kind of lame. I mean, it's cool for some styles of music. Kind of, but kind of. It's just, ugh, I don't know. I couldn't see it for a band that like is all about energy yeah. and I don't see it. We didn't want to kill that vibe that like when you come and see us live, like we smell brutal and we fucking, and we look <laughs> brutal and like, and we're fucking pummeling the whole shit. So like we just, we were, we were really hesitant on getting in on doing the streaming kind of stuff until we had this idea. And then it was like, all right, that fits the way that we, we want to present ourselves. So um, it took us a while. It took us a little while. And we were getting a lot of people that were uh, hitting us up and asking us if we wanted to do certain uh, stream ideas of theirs. And there was always like, oh, you know, a 50% commission goes to us and all this stuff. And we're like, and I just kept thinking, I'm like, we have, we have the know-how to do all this streaming stuff. We don't need to pay anybody. Like, how can we do this in-house? So you know, eventually we just came up with this and we j- we've been going hard on it. So it's going to be, I guarantee it for anybody that that is even, you know, curious about it. I guarantee it will be entertaining and something like you have never seen before in like a, in a as far as a stream goes, because it's it's a fucking basically like a death metal deathcore band doing fucking a variety show. I mean, it's going to be fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> this actually sounds like an idea that I think the other bands will follow in the footsteps of. I hope so. I think so too, but I think I will say that only certain bands I think could pull it off because I'm sure you guys have seen lots of bands in studio videos where they're trying to be funny and it's like Maybe you should just stick to playing guitar. <laughs> but there's certain bands who have like the personality. Like for instance, I think Black Dahlia could probably pull something off like that. They'd be amazing. Yeah, because they're funny. And like bands with like personality could pull it off. But I think when you get bands that are just, and this is not to judge their musical ability or ability as a band, because there's lots of great bands who- Are boring? Might not be like- <laughs> That's not interesting people. Is that what you're trying to say? No, I'm just saying they're they're not like entertainers or like it's cool to listen to their music. Of course, but uh, (laughs) I don't I don't think I'd want to sit there and watch them on the internet making jokes. It takes a certain type of personality. Well, and that's also where we're filming all these skits and doing these really silly things. Like I'll give one away. Like we made a a prop book and it's Alex Webster's dictionary. And it says now with more syllables, the 666th edition. And it's Dan Kenny reading from the dictionary, all these brutal words and, 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 and like pronouncing them wrong. And like, he's, (laughs) he's wearing a wig and glasses and we're, we're, we're filming them and we're literally sitting like we're getting done. We're like, this is either going to be hilarious or people are just going to think we're really stupid <laughs> like, <laughs> or both. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, both, hopefully yeah. both, you know, we, I mean, we are, that's it. We're, we're both. We're, we're, we're really stupid and, 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 and really funny while we're doing it. <laughs> Sounds like that's kind of like your MO historically is get an idea 
and then go fucking hard till it's like done basically. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're definitely those kind of people. It's like, if you have the idea and everybody's on board with it, like we're going for it, you know, we're going to, we're definitely going to go for it. I, I'm, I'm all about ideas, high ideas. I'm just like, I want to hear anything you got that you want to do and, and, and try. Like, I just like ideas. It's like anything that's going to fuel the, the creativity and get everybody working together, like, and just like keep the hive mind that is us, you know, rolling. Like, that's what I'm, I'm all about. Like until when the ideas run out is when I'm fucking done, you know? <laughs> so you guys are like a hive mind type band. Unfortunately, yeah, we're this democratic band that it's like sometimes that's so rare. Uh, it's so annoying too. Like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I know like probably, you know, Brown's probably a leader of the band, right? No, no, it's, no. A, it's demo- democracy as well. Your band's a democracy. Yeah. I had no idea. I would never have guessed Why? that. Cause you're, did you, cause, yeah, cause you judge me, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just thought you were the tyrant. <laughs> yeah. No, I no, 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 like, no, I mean, when it comes to ideas like something like that, you need everyone on board. It needs to be a collaboration thing. You know what I mean? So yeah, it is actually a democracy. Everyone has to agree or majority at least. At least. That's yeah. Fine. There's always somebody in the band that doesn't like what's going on. <laughs> oh yeah. Always. <laughs> it's so weird being in a band, just like thinking about what it, what it is to be in a band. Like you're working with people that all they want to do is play music, but there's like this other business side of things and having to make things a reality and like getting everybody on the same page. It's like, wait, when in our lives did we decide that this was a good idea? Like this, to, <laughs> to rely on four, like most people are poorly educated like me and we're all just fucking <laughs> barely hanging on to life, trying to figure out how to like do anything correct. Like it's such an insane life. So I'm married to four other dudes. Is it something you would like, would you advise it to somebody like drop out of high school and just like go for it with your band? I would. But the (laughs) only thing is, is I gotta, you gotta ask yourself, like, are you fucking sick enough? Like, you know, like, are you badass (laughs) or do do you suck? Like, I would not advise it if you kind of have this inkling that you might suck. How do you know? (laughs) There's a lot of delusional people out there. How did you know? You have to be like delusional enough in yourself that like, yeah, I can fucking do this and I'm fucking cool and I can entertain people. Even, you know, you just got to convince yourself to do it. It's, I mean, as much as the the fake it till you make it thing is a cliche to say, but it's like, you got to fucking go for it so hard. And, and a lot of it is kind of faking it until it actually, until it works out. Like, how did you know that was a good idea? Because generally dropping out of high school to pursue music is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. But school, school sucks. <laughs> yes, um, it was terrible. It's so, it's so, God, it's you so bad. You always have the opportunity to go back later on, right? You could always just go back and finish. Fuck that. Yeah, I could get, I could get my GED or like whatever, but why? I came so close to dropping out. I got talked out of it, but God, I hated school so fucking much. Jesus Christ. It's terrible. I had like the smallest little bits of... I was in local bands that we got newspaper articles and we actually drew a crowd and like, even just like myself, like I was the dude. And like, I've probably said this in other interviews, I was either selling you a bag of weed or I was selling you tickets to my show. And that was who I was. (laughs) And everybody knew me as that. And I, and I knew it at a young age and I'm like, this is who I am. This is what people know me as. And like, I already knew I had this kind of this 
that's what I was going to do forever. I'm going to fucking be, well, hopefully not selling bags of weed, but (laughs) selling tickets to shows. I just kind of felt it at an early age that like, this is what's up. And I've said this story too. Like I went and saw Suicide Silence before I was in Suicide Silence. Uh, They were opening for, I think God forbid was this particular show. And I had seen their name around and they were already getting buzz as a local band. I went and saw them and I remember just seeing, I saw, I saw Mitch, I saw Mitch and I was like, whoa, dude, this guy has got it. You know, he's, he has like exactly yeah, what it for takes sure. to be, you know, a fucking rock star. And I didn't know I was going to be in that band, but that was 2003, I think. And two years later, when I saw that they were having tryouts, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try out for that band. You know, I'll, I'll go for that shit. And then like once meeting them and that whole thing of having convers literally having conversations with your bandmates of like, this is all we want to do. This is the only thing we're going to do. You know, we're, we're going to do everything that we have to do to make this successful. You know, I just had never been around a group of guys like that before. So I, at, at that point it was like, yeah, all right, I'm quitting everything and doing this. So what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, making it in a band or as a producer or entrepreneur, any of those things is really pretty unrealistic. It's not going to happen for most people. So we're kind of like in a unique group of people here who have made shit work. But as unrealistic as it is, I can tell you that like everything I've done that's worked out, even if it's seemingly improbable, there in my mind, there was always like a, a logical path. Like it made sense, perfect sense. Like this is definitely going to work. I know it's going to work because I have like this evidence that it's going to work. Like I have all these things that have been happening that I can totally use as evidence. Kind of like you were saying, like you were already getting that kind of attention before you joined the band. Like you already were uh, known as like that person. So you already kind of had that evidence, that data basically to like help you decide that it was not a stupid idea. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like I wouldn't advise anybody to go too hard in it. It's it's such a shitty thing to say. Like I still just give the advice of just like, dude, if you have it in you to do everything you possibly can to make this work, then you, I think that anybody can make it work, but on what level, you know, anybody can be in a band and, and, and be touring literally like you can put together a band and take your band on tour anybody can do it really easy to be broke as well it's super easy to be broke exactly yeah Yeah. Uh, you know there's like a level of making it and like success though that is like a disconnect from i think anybody that's looking at it from afar and or wants to be a part of it you can go be in a touring band but yeah like actual success it's like dude it's so hard like even suicide sounds like we still to this day we we're, we're not we're not fucking loaded. We don't got shit tons of money. Like we have to work, you know, all the time to be able to just survive. You know, we're still, that's still, you know, where, where it is. And I think that that's pretty much how a lot of people's favorite bands are. You know, we're all still, we still got to put in a lot of work and make this shit stay alive. It's not something I always tell people to a hundred percent pursue unless it's like, if you don't do it, will you regret it? Yeah. Will you regret it? Is it, is that, is that it? You know, if you don't go for it, is it going to be like, you know, the reason why you're fucking miserable for the rest of your life? Well, I think I know a lot of people who are miserable because they didn't go for it, but they also didn't go for it because they didn't have it in them to do everything possible. So it's kind of like fucked if you do fucked if you don't. Everyone who experiences success was that I know of, except for like a couple of weirdos that got lucky, which is super rare like super, super rare. I know a lot of people on the outside think that 
a lot of people just get lucky, but that's fucking rare shit. Everyone that I know was willing to die for it basically kind of did what you did, just said, fuck everything else. This is what's going to happen. Doesn't matter what I have to give up for it. This is what has to happen. And I think that a lot of people just are not willing to do that. And yeah, maybe they turn 35 and they are miserable that they didn't do it. But I kind of feel like if it, they had it in them to do it, they would have done it, right? Because everyone who does it says they had no choice. They had to. Right. That's how I feel about it. What about you, Brown? Yeah. How do you, how, how, what, what happened? Yeah. What's, what's your story? I don't really know. I don't, I don't so know. It's, it. it's really similar to yours, actually. Really similar. So yeah. um, that's Ackle, what I'm saying. Ackle from Tesseract. So I heard him playing and there was something really, really unique about it that I really, really liked. And this is early 2000s as well, 2003, 2002. And it's when he started writing the original Tesseract stuff. So I'm talking way before even the first album came out. And it had this new sound and it was like a mixture of Meshuggah mixed with like Jeff Buckley and Pink Floyd. And it just worked so well together. And I heard it and it was like, well, I need to be in a band with this dude because he's sick. And then, yeah, we did Fell Silent. Well, basically what happened, he was the only guitar player in Fell Silent. And they weren't looking for a second guitarist until they saw Meshuggah live. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh, we need a second guitar player. <laughs> and that's kind of how it all started. And at that time, I was 18 when I joined Fell Silent and I was taking a year off before I went to uni. But then I joined the band. And I was like, no, nah, I've got to do this. This is what I want to do. And that was it. So it's very similar to yours. You had no other, you had no other choice. Yeah. Just had to make it work. I feel like there is some sort of, I want to say luck, but like, I don't even believe in luck. Really? It's the luck is that you met the right person at the right time. Circumstance. Like, yeah, that you happen to go to that show and you saw Mitch. That's the lucky part. Right. Or that you went and saw Ackle or like that. I knew someone that met Monty Con that knew Monty Connor and passed him something like that's the luck. None of the other shit is the luck. Right. I don't know. I think there's another little element of luck. And that luck is if anyone actually likes what you're fucking doing. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> that's mostly down to time as well. The audience has to be ready for it. Like, psychologically for whatever you're doing. Exactly. I mean, if we just take, for example, the band Candiria, which I consider to be one of the greatest bands ever, and no one cared. <laughs> and and it's it's so good. They came too early. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those bands. Totally. I think the same thing with The Life Once Lost as well. Yeah, but yeah, they came, but both of them just came around just that little tiny bit too early. True, true. If they had come around, like if Candiria had been around in the Dillinger Escape Plan era, I bet you they would have been a really big band in that scene. Right. But they, they were around that time, but you, you remember what happened to them. They had that massive crash in 2003. And then obviously the 2004 album came out. Which was actually the van on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. What doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Uh-huh. It's a great record. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's completely different than the record before, because the record before was three hundred percent density, which was just it's insane now. If you listen to it, it's just it's amazingly chaotic. And then when What Um Doesn't Kill You came out, it was like their more commercial side, which was also fucking great. They're one of those bands that could just write in every single style and whatever they did, it was fantastic. But again, the people weren't ready for it. So there's your element of luck, which I don't think is luck. I think it's like 
right place, right time. It's timing. It's timing. Yeah. And I feel like there's like, it's, it has to do with, you know, maybe in some sense, like this energy that it, it the hive mind of the scene or of, of people, music listeners, like an, there's an energy that's ready to receive the power of a band. Like a band has like this power, mm-hmm. like, or, or individuals in the band have this power, but it's like, is, you know, the, the, the people that are going to listen to it, are they ready to receive that power yet? You know, like Meshuga was doing the most insane shit before anyone was ready to receive it. And like it took, you know, five to 10 years for people to be like, oh, wait, Meshuga is like probably one of the greatest metal bands ever, uh, you know, and, and it's definitely a lot longer than that. <laughs> yeah, even yeah, well, well longer. What, yeah. the fir- like first record was in like 89 or something like that, you know? Yeah, but, but no I don't mean, care till 2008, I don't think. True. So Obson came out. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I, I think about it a little different because I was a super nerd and was listening to Meshuggah when I was, you know, younger. But obviously they'd been up, they'd been doing it since I was, you know, just barely born. Um, but <laughs> I think about this too with how many bands there were that, you know, they had this like potential energy to share, but they were just too early on the scene. Like I, I think like Premonitions of War was one of them who, you know, they were doing something that was like the death ish kind of stuff before death core dead, dead water drowning. Both of those bands actually had Nate Johnson, who was the original singer of fit for an autopsy. Just like so many, so many of these bands that it's like, they have what it takes. They had what it takes, but it's like, yeah, the timing wasn't there. And like, then I guess if you're saying what kind of luck they had, it was kind of like bad luck with the timing. Yeah. Do you think to a degree that a business sense comes into that as well and understanding what you're seeing from a market point of view? I think it does. And it's so rare to find someone that's uh, like good at doing music and being in a band and they're also good at handling the business. Like it's so rare to find (laughs) it. It's so rare to find it. And like, you know, I know I still like as years go on, feel like, all right, I think I understand what's going on with the business and like how to do all this. And it's like, no, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing still. <laughs> I think that AL was quite good at actually like AL's story about how he got his band signed to Roadrunner. Yeah, but that's why I quit making music and started doing business because uh, <laughs> I'm better at business than music. But yeah, uh, the way I got my band signed was totally through logic. I just read what it took. To get signed to a major label, I studied it. I studied a bunch of major label bands, found a pattern, and then repeated the pattern. Exactly. And it worked? And it worked, yeah. Got signed to Roadrunner. It it worked to a T. I just studied like a bunch of major label bands and was like, I'm in a death metal band. I want to get on Roadrunner. What does it take? So who are the people that I need to influence? Who are the people who influence the people I need to influence? What kind of numbers do I need to push in order for them to pay attention? What kind of things does the band have to do for them to consider it legit? Like, it's just like checking off all the boxes and uh, it worked, but it didn't ever have that kind of energy that you're talking about. Like public was never ready for it. It worked because uh, I calculated it like a business move. But like I said, I think I'm better at business than music, which is why I do business now. (laughs) you can totally get signed and get agents and managers and all that. But if the public's not ready, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. hundred percent. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. I think that that kind of, when it comes down to being super good at business, like you're saying, it's like, you're kind of forgetting probably a lot of the the points that it's like, it's entertainment and like, you can be super good with business, but at the same time, it's like, can you entertain? 
Can you, can you get on stage and, and, and turn any crowd of people into a fan of your band is like that. That's, that's what matters most with being in a band. It's like impressing people. That's far more important because, uh, if you can do that, then you can get the right team and you're good. It's far more important to have that charisma. That's always where I came from with music was just like, put me on a fucking stage and give me a guitar and let me just get fucking wild and I'll fucking, I'll, I'll make sure everyone has a good fucking time. <laughs> the business side of it was always, I mean, I, st- I still, I, I, I used to say it so much. It's like, all I want to do is play guitar. I don't want to fucking make any decisions or do anything. And it just, it doesn't work that way. Like nowadays, I feel like the future of people that are professional musicians, they're, they have to have the business side of it down. And they have to be good and they have to... To some degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, to, I mean, to, to some extent. But it's also, I think, the love, like the passion for what you're doing, like is still... I've been saying that since 2007, 2008. Remember, just like we were meeting people touring with, you know, Mudvayne and bands that were a part of the massive side of the music industry before it arced and fell apart and talking to them about like contracts and amount, amounts of money that they used to, to hear. And then like, I would be like, Oh, well, like, this is what we're, our contracts look like. And they're just like, wow, you know, that's what's happening now. <laughs> I bet I was bad. <laughs> you have to love playing your instrument or being in your band so much now. And, and, and you have to accept that it's just like, you know, that it's not what it used to be. And if you understand the business well enough, you can find the places where you can kind of pinch the pennies and put it together and make it all work. And you have to be so creative with it all now. It's just, it's a whole, it's a whole new world with, I mean, look at Brown with Riff Hard and this and and you guys with this, this is like, this is the extension of your creativity and business minds manifesting into this whole new experience. And it's, this is influencing the next generation of people of how they're going to, you know, have their multiple platforms and bands and how they're going to do it. It's like, you can't just be in a band anymore. You got to do so many things to make it all work. Sounds though, like you're enjoying that side of things. Like the way you were talking about the tour, the streaming tour, like doesn't sound like you're not enjoying it or anything. Oh, dude, no way. I'm probably like overly positive about life. <laughs> it's true. I've, I've just had like so much fucked up shit happen. I mean, like, you know, Mitch dying is one big thing. There's a ton, there's a ton of other things that have happened in my life that it's just like, I've had so many bad things that taught me such huge lessons that now it's just like, I'm down with all of it, dude. Like I'm down, I'm down to make anything work and, and try to turn a fucking pandemic into something awesome or turn fucking, you know, a close friend dying into, uh, you know, an epiphany, you know, so like anything that goes on, I'm all about the idea. What's the idea that comes from this situation? Because there's going to be more fucking terrible shit that happens in all of our lives. And that is inevitable. And and you got to accept that shit. If you think that fucking life is going to be easy, your life's going to be fucking <laughs> terrible. Like you're, you're, you're in for it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. And I think that it's, it's hard to sh- just tell someone like, you know, just, just be happy or just enjoy what's going on. It's hard to tell someone to do that. Like you kind of really have to learn to learn that. But, um, over the years, yeah, I've really figured out how to not be such a fucking dismal fuck <laughs> <laughs> and just remember that, you know, Hey man, like you play guitar and you can hang out with your friends on a podcast in different areas of the world and hang out. So like, just be happy about that shit and fucking write some sick riffs. 
Every single time I talk to you, it instantly makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you for that. It's been so long, but you just instantly made me happy. And that's probably why I enjoyed the tour so much. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah. You too, man. I remember you just blowing my goddamn mind with like smart shit, like about timing <laughs> and whatever the fuck you were talking to me about. I still don't know what you were talking about. Some like it's 23 <laughs> beats. It's 23 beats, but like 23 counts. And it's like four measures. And I'm like, uh, yeah, all right. I gotcha, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you used to be a dismal fuck? Like, is this something that you taught yourself or are you just wired happy? No, I think I've always always pretty like I was always into being positive and not really liking when people are like dwelling on on negative shit. But I think that for a portion of my life, a lot before Mitch passed, I wasn't that open about, you know, being positive. It wasn't something I would be I would want to talk about and like keep that positive positivity flowing because it's like being in, in a heavy metal, death metal, death core, whatever kind of band. It's like, it's not exactly the area where everyone's happy, go lucky and fucking having a great time. I, I, I feel like I had to relearn and re kind of, uh, you know, assess who I am. I don't know. I think I started to just kind of talk to people more and like try to be there for people more as opposed to just kind of worrying about myself and kind of saying, fuck everyone kind of thing. I was kind of anti like the world at a, for a long time. And I, I just, I, I kind of, yeah, I had to teach myself, you know, I, I wholeheartedly endorse healthy psychedelic therapy. <laughs> I don't think people need to like go and, and drop acid every day, but like if you can find the right group of people and you know, you're all on the same page and have some sort of situation where it's like, Hey, I want to like, I want to heal some shit in my life right now. Like, yeah, dude, eat some mushrooms and go out in the forest and like figure your shit out straight up, you know? And I feel like there's been a couple of times in my life where I've had these like major, you know, for lack of a better term, like come to Jesus type situations where it's like, and definitely I'm not, I'm not a Jesus dude. You look like him. You look like him though. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not, you know, but well, Jesus, Jesus is a pretty good dude. He, he, you know, the white, the white Jesus, the one that looks like me, he's a pretty, he's a, he's a good looking guy. You know? um, Jesus, Jesus was not white. Let's just face it. Jesus wasn't white. Definitely not. <laughs> what I'm saying for me. Yeah. Like I, I've had a couple of situations that like the drugs told me not to do drugs and not to drink so much anymore. The drugs told me to fucking be nicer to myself and be nicer to everybody. And like that, that has transformed me into a much happier, more sober, healthy person. Cause I used to be a fucking mess. Like we were talking about before, you know, we, we got into the rest of this. I used to be a goddamn mess. So I'm sure you've seen those memes. Like when the drugs tell you not to do drugs, you know, like that's, to that totally happened to me. You know, <laughs> do you think that when a band is starting and like is super driven, like say the early days, should they all drop acid together? <laughs> No, 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 not that. I was thinking more, do you think that that fuck the world attitude kind of, kind of helps drive it though? Like, do you think it's kind of necessary maybe to kind of be a bit of a killer to some degree? There's yeah, to some degree, I think for sure you kind of got to be out for blood in a sense when it comes to like destroying, you know, every band in your scene and like being the best you could possibly be. I think a healthy amount of competition in that sense is pretty good when you're first starting. But I think the longer you get into it, the longer you realize that the more you compete, the the more, you know, probably the person or the bands or the artist that 
the only competition they have is themselves, I think they're the ones that are going to be the best. I think that's a maturity thing. Yeah. Which is hard to have when you're 18. Oh yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. When you're 18, you know, destroy everybody. (laughs) Be the coolest, be the heaviest, (laughs) fuck the most chicks. That's my advice. (laughs) Good advice. I think that maybe the hangovers every single night after tour is also probably like the reason that you want to fuck the world because it feels like the end of the world. True, true, true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, after 25, I was just like, hangovers are the fucking worst. <laughs> like, fuck this shit. They get exponentially worse. It's not linear. It's exponential. Like, they go from something that sucks to something that's life ruining, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. That time I woke up in the bus in Slovenia. So we uh, we were on this tour on that tour in 2011, and I woke up in the bus in Slovenia, and there was nowhere to plug the bus in. So I had the worst hangover of the tour that night, and there was no air conditioning on the bus, and I crawled out the bus and just vomited everywhere, and it was the worst day of the tour for me. <laughs> There's always that day on tour where you're the most hungover, and for some reason you're pulled over on the side of the middle of goddamn nowhere. There's no power. The fucking fridge has been off, so all the Food's gone fucking rotten. It stinks like shit. Everybody's pissed off. It's just like, what the fuck? This is what we do. This is this is this is why being in a band is insane. Like, how is this what the fuck we do? As far as like the hangovers and like more tidbits of advice, I feel like the safest way to fucking put on good shows and be professional is like don't drink that much on tour. Sounds so hard and lame, but like, like just. No, that's actually what someone just said in the last episode we did. Really? I think that's what, that's what Wes said. Just don't drink so much on tour, basically. Yeah. Wes Houch? Yeah. 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 Wes is the man. He's, he's who I've been getting lessons from during the, during the quarantine. He's a, he's, he's a killer. Dude, he is dude. insane. Insane. He's deadly, dude. He's so fucking good. He's, he's probably like, you know, up there was top five. My, my favorite guitar players of, of like anyone, anyone. He's just so good. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's that good for sure. But well, him and I, we did, he was playing with Thy Art is Murder and we did a tour together. And I remember, you know, him and I would fucking, we went so hard. So for him to not be drinking, <laughs> you know, him and him to not be drinking is also super in, inspirational. I was so prepared to, you know, hit the road and tour. And like, I'll say, you know, we released a record on Valentine's Day this year, 2020, and uh, it's called Become the Hunter. We worked really hard on it. We were ready to just start touring super hard. And then, you know, this happened, the the pandemic happened and we couldn't tour. And I had all these, this grandiose idea, like, oh, I'm going to go on tour and I'm going to drink one day a week. And I'm finally going to like, you know, hold myself to it and I'm going to be responsible and now I'm at home day drinking during the pandemic and just like, <laughs> so it all just belly flopped. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll get the chance to try it at some point in the future. Oh I, yeah. I hope so. Maybe by 2022 or uh, something. Yeah, really. Yeah. I wonder if the virtual tour, even though I'll be home, should I not drink on the virtual tour? What do you guys think? What's your professional opinion? <laughs> one day a week. <laughs> one day a week? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. One day a week. I also think the drinking on tour is defined by the people you're around. Like, obviously, in a way, you drink too much when you hate the people you're around, and then you drink too much when you're around the people you love. <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't fucking help, dude. It doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the other, the other great thing, like to, like the tour that we did together with 
after the burial, bleed from within, suicide silence, all on the same bus. When you have those three band bus tours, that's yeah. that is a hundred percent murderous. It's just it is gonna be there is always going to be either the same dude that drinks every single night that tries to get everybody to drink or at least one person that wants to party. So like they're trying to get yeah. somebody it's it you can't avoid it. Especially when it was the festivals as well. That was the problem. They're the best and all your friends are there and you haven't seen I haven't seen you in years. Like let's fucking rage. <laughs> and <they're> like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We did a tour with Immure and uh D's Nuts. One time. It was the uh, Never yeah. Say Die tour. I think it was probably just a year after we did. It was 2008, wasn't it? No, I think it was, I think it was 2011. Oh, yeah, because the 2008 one was, that one was with As Blood Runs Black, wasn't it? That was the only European summer slaughter that ever happened. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, it was Born of Osiris Born of well. Osiris. Yeah. First time they were in Europe. First time we ever met them. Then they... They still love to party, but they fucking partied so goddamn hard on that tour. I remember we were, we were I remember getting kicked out of uh, a of a, a a club in like Scotland or something because Cameron was so drunk and he was literally he went and jumped on like a security guard's back, like tried to like piggyback ride. And we're just like, I, I thought it was hilarious. I was like, hell yeah, do it again, you know. But then next thing you know, they're grabbing all of us and kicking us all out. Yeah, I was at the London show. That was before we met. Yeah. Yeah, that, I thought it was that tour, but yeah, 2011. So you were touring with D's Nuts and... What, do you know D's Nuts? What do you guys know about this band? You know, <laughs> do you know these guys? These guys are hoodlums, dude. Yeah. They're, they're good for nothing, these D's Nuts guys. No. <laughs> Their whole thing is DTD, drunk till death. And we were living on a bus with them. Like, it was insane. It, it was the best time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> there was a night where we had a we had like absinthe from the Czech Republic. So the real kind that had the beetle in it. Oh god. We drank it all and we ate the beetle. I don't even really remember. I thought it would be funny to take <laughs> one of these like Eastern European porno magazines and cut out all the like really weird hairy old women and men, cut them all out and hide <laughs> these things all over the bus. So like for pretty much the rest of the tour, basically I hid them in such good spots that like someone would be like, oh, I'm going to play a PlayStation game, like open the PlayStation. There's like fucking hairy old woman or like, you know, or, 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 or you know, oh, I need to, I need to get more toilet paper. Like, let me look under the fucking the, the sink. Oh shit. There's like a ton of giant fucking hairy dicks right there. Like all tour, someone just find more shit. And I thought it was hilarious, but everybody pretty much was pissed off of me they were mad about that how could they possibly be mad about that i, f I forget who who it was i think it was frankie palmary he was mad at me he's he's mad at the world though you know <laughs> i don't think he is anymore i haven't yeah i haven't talked to him in a long time yeah he released a statement last year saying that he's not mad at the world anymore <laughs> or something <laughs> something like that no, he actually released a statement about it <laughs> is this thing on is anyone listening i am not mad at the world anymore <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So about what we were talking about earlier, what do you think about people having a plan B? Sounds like you don't believe in plan Bs. I don't. I don't believe in believing in things. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know, dude. I feel like I could say, yeah, like, you know, as soon as you start to have a plan B, then you're setting yourself up for the potential of like, well, if this doesn't work, then I know I can do this. 
And like, you know, you say if you don't, then it's like you have no other option to succeed. But it's like, I, I don't know. I can't say that I wholeheartedly believe in, in, in either of those things. I think it still comes down to like the circumstance of the person and what kind of person you are. Are you the kind of person that's going to be the as soon as there's an opportunity to bail on your plan A to go to plan B, then don't have a plan B. But like, I mean, I never had a plan B and that's... A, I, I also just look at my situation as so damn unique that it's like to tell anybody, it's it like, is. just do what I did, man. You know, it's, it'll, it's easy, <laughs> you know, like for me, I just look back at it and think about, damn, like how lucky do I feel? You know, I don't know how much real luck it was, but I also, I've talked to, you know, like, I think it was Paul and Alex from Cannibal Corpse. And I asked them about what we're talking about now, you know, like, how'd you know that it was going to work and how'd you guys, you know, decide to just go for it. And they were like, honestly, we just kept going and we never really realized, you know, that it was happening. We, we never really thought about it as like, it's working or anything. It's just like, it's always been unfolding. And then they're like, obviously getting on Ace Ventura was like, okay, something's happening right now. This is really good. But it's like, it's, it's, it's an, oh, it's an, it's a constant process that's always evolving. And that's kind of another thing, you know, to people that are still doing it, you aren't going to just wake up one day and realize you made it or it's working. Like you have to just keep going and it's always going to be work and it's always going to be unfolding. It's not just going to be one day all of a sudden, like it's over. I don't need to, I don't need to figure out how to keep making this work. (laughs) I have arrived. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I remember I was working with a producer once. I'm not going to say who. Go on. Spill the beans. I will not say who, but he was slacking. This is a well-known dude. He was slacking, waking up at like 7 p.m. and like not starting work till like 11, being high the whole time and like only working for like three hours and basically fucking around a lot with bands with big budgets. This isn't like big budget days. And I was like, dude, don't you think you're going to be pissing off your clients at some point? He's like, I don't need to work that hard. I made it. It's like, oh shit. Did you really just say that? <laughs> I actually know exactly who he's talking about. <laughs> he doesn't have it anymore, though, right? He's not doing it. He's kind of doing like super low tier death metal sometimes and local bands with a budget. Down from like top 20 bands constantly. Well, that's what he gets, dude. Sounds like a real piece of shit. that's what happens yeah that is what happens dude so what are you working on with wes what what are you working on guitar wise honestly dude like i'm i'm not ashamed to say it like my my theory knowledge is pretty basic i've always i've just been a, a feel player and just like you know do whatever feels right and Really, Wes is just grabbing me and and like making sure I'm learning. Really, man, like he's got me playing all my modes and learning how to play, like playing them with octaves in one position, like stuff like this. And, uh, you know, really memorizing all my inversions and really just making sure that I'm like able to see my my neck like I sh- probably should be able to see and know what I'm playing before I'm playing it chords voicing really you know 
kind of more like like what Riff Hard is doing with like going back to the rhythm kind of thing. It's less it's less lead stuff with Wes. He's kind of putting it back in into perspective of like being melodic with chords and progressions. And yeah, just making me feel like I really don't know shit about guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Wes has a really good ability to do that. Yeah, yeah. Even when he's not teaching you, when you're just watching him, it makes you feel like you can't play guitar. Dude, he's got the fucking dad hands, you know? He's just got these fucking, just whatever he's playing, just like, holy shit, man. But yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid to afraid to say it. I just went to him and was just like, hey, dude, like, teach me all the stuff I should have learned and, you know, when I was younger that I never really like focused on. Well, what did you focus on when you were younger? Cause I mean, dude, you guys are heavy as fuck. You had to focus on something. There's no way that like heavy ass tone like that just happens randomly. Like even if you just focused on being heavy as fuck, that's still something. I hated the world. I hated the world. (laughs) I, I was just trying to express my pure hatred for all of human beings and, and mankind. (laughs) And, and I think I succeeded a little and no, (laughs) the thing is, is that my upbringing in music was so, it was, it was, it was eclectic. It was really weird. My dad was a jazz guitar player. My sister played saxophone. My mom loved, you know, pop music journey and eighties metal. And I, you know, I was always drawn to like heavier stuff. My, I really, you know, I loved Sabbath and Ozzy at a really young age. And what I was, you know, focusing on when I was young was understanding you know, what people were doing when they were writing music, trying to understand composition of just the the coolest shit to me, whether it was Metallica or Pantera or Ozzy, like how did they come up with this song and why does this make sense and how like structures and also at the same time, just sick licks. Like what's fucking, what are those, what, how do I play those sick ass licks? Like how do I, how do I make it sound the way they're making it sound? I was, I was so much of an emulator of my favorite players trying to get my vibrato to sound like dime bags or try to get my, my taps to sound like Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes. So like being able to emulate, you know, the artists that I liked the most was really where, where I started as, as a young guitar player. When I play Master of Puppets, I want to sound like Metallica. When I play uh, Cowboys from Hell, I want it to sound like Dimebag. You know, being able to emulate these, these the, my favorite players, that was really where I focused on. And like my dad would be able to teach me how to play that stuff because he was, he was such a freaking awesome guitar player. And quickly I learned that, you know, I could focus on learning, you know, all my modes and, you know, practicing all my scales and all this stuff. But if I was going to go play with people, especially when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, most people you're playing with, they're not learning that kind of stuff. So then once I started joining bands, what I really focused on was how to collaborate with people. How do I be a good band member? How do I take what this guitar player is playing in front of me? And how do I make it even sicker? How do I help him be a better player? How can I get him to help me be a better player just by you know, actually working with them, not try to outshine anybody or try to be better than anybody. Just try to actually work with the musicians that you're playing with. So, yeah, I mean, I studied music. I played French horn and played trumpet. And, you know, I I learned to read music at a pretty young age before I ever picked up the guitar. But pretty quickly, I learned from playing in bands that, you know, none of that stuff even really 
matters that much. It just matters. Can you write a sick riff and can you write a sick song and can you be a good band member? I actually think you focused on a lot of the right things. Yeah, totally. Sounds like you focus on the right shit. <laughs> what do you guys know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure that you encountered a lot of people who were like sitting there focusing on scales all the time or playing as fast as possible, like that kind of stuff. Most guitar players I knew growing up were like, that's what they were trying to do. They weren't focused on learning how songs work and why something sounds really cool. That whole side of things are more about how fucking fast can I play? I want to be faster than everybody. Yeah, there was still an element of I wanted to be faster than everybody, but... <laughs> I think everyone has that to a degree, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what everyone's goal is when they first start. Yeah. I feel like I was really lucky with, again, luck. Talking about luck. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't even really believe in luck. I'm very fortunate that my dad was such an experienced guitar player and studied music. And he was able to tell me, my dad studied jazz for eight years and he knew, he, he he's like 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 Wes with music, you know, just like, so he just knew it all. And, uh, he told me, he's like, you could study music and do all know everything, but like, you could still never be able to write, you know, a song that would connect with people. You don't have to know everything about music to write, you know, a sick tune. And, but also at the same time, there's not really a formula to being a hundred percent punk rock about it either. Otherwise, like every shitty singer with a decent philosophy and good idea would be like as big as Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> There's no 100% like protocol to being 100% punk rock, rock and roll, or being 100% studious, educated musician. There's not 100% way to make it all happen. There's kind of got to be, you know, this, this is, this makes me think about this. A lot of like guitar players, especially ones that aren't that good and famous, not good, famous guitar players, they say, you know, like, this guy's my favorite. They exist. They exist. A lot of people think, you know, I'm one of those people, <laughs> but um, <laughs> they'll, they'll say, you know, these guys are my favorite players because they were sloppy and they're not, it wasn't perfect. And, you know, everything they played was, you know, just them and all this. But what like a lot of these guys don't mention is like whoever they're talking about, whatever player that was sloppy and, you know, had their own personality, that player probably sat in their room and found a certain thing that they were really good at that they could fucking make sound really awesome. And that became their thing. Like they found something they loved about their playing and they exploited it and made that their thing. And like a lot of these guys, they don't talk about, it's like they still practiced, they still put in the time to be, you know, their own player and have their own style. But they figured out what it was that was good about their playing, what made them so special. And I'm so tired of hearing people talk about, oh, this guy, because he was sloppy and fucking real. It's like, so what, dude? There's a shit ton of fucking sloppy and real guitar players out there. It's just like, give some sort of reason why that makes sense for this person. You know, it's just like, it seems like too many people talk about this kind of thing without giving any insight to a young musician of like, well, so wait, are you telling me that I can be sloppy and I can just play like shit and, and it'll be cool? It's like, no, like you got to find your own shit, like your own style of slop. Like you got to figure out what that is. Yeah, those players are not great because of their slop. It's despite their slop. Their unique voice or whatever it is artistically that they're doing is so good that the slop doesn't matter. It might even add character, but 
if they didn't have that unique voice, they'd just be sloppy ass guitar players. Totally. I think that every guitar player that is at a certain level, you can hear that voice thing that you're talking about. Like, for example, how Steve Vai plays nearly everything that he's done in Lydian. You know what I mean? It's like he found his voice and his, whenever I hear Lydian, I hear him. <laughs> and same goes with a lot of the other keys. If you notice that like a lot of guitar players stick to using a similar set of keys because that's what they in their brain, that sounds good to them. And it's finding your own voice within that. Yngwie and his harmonic minor. Yeah. Sometimes Phrygian dominant. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, I think that every guitar player gravitates, like you say, like they can be sloppy as long as they find their own voice, which is usually characterized by the scales and the modes that they use. I think Matt from Muse is the perfect example because that dude only sounds like himself. He's fucking awesome. But I have heard some of his raw tracks and they're not like sloppy, sloppy, but they're definitely not like what we're used to in the metal world at all. There's mistakes and like fucked up notes and stuff, but who gives a fuck? Like Muse sounds great. Producer probably got paid too much money and didn't care. Woke up at 8 p.m. (laughs) at night, started working at 11. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he made it. He didn't need to work hard. (laughs) 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 Who, Who gives a shit? So where did the super heavy side of your playing come from? How did that come about? Like the crusher riffs and the destruction. I feel like there just was never anything heavy enough. There still isn't anything heavy enough. Like I still try and find the thing that is heavier than anything that's ever existed. I don't know. I think it all just kind of started with going from listening to things like Sabbath to listening to Slayer to Pantera to uh, Meshuggah to Brutal Death Metal and Slam. And I feel like I almost kind of discovered it on accident because of wanting to be in a band and there was so much more going on in like the really extreme metal world. And like, I always loved listening to it, but there was so many more people that were doing this kind of thing. Like we want to write these, go, I would go watch bands play. They're writing these songs that are just like, what the fuck does it is even happening in this? But the crowd is going insane. <laughs> and that's, that's like, Another thing about being a musician, you want to go get on stage and play a show to a bunch of people that are reacting, fucking, you know, just losing their damn minds. So I think that also that had a big to do with my wanting to play things that were excruciatingly heavy was wanting to satisfy a crowd, just get people to go fucking insane. I don't even know. I don't even know where it all came from. I think you just said where it came from. The need to always have something be heavier. I know what you're talking about too. It's never ending, man. It's never ending. There's never anything. There's going to be something so heavy in the future. That's just going to be like, Oh my God. Like it's probably going to (laughs) be, it's probably going to be Meshuggah's next record. Cause they're usually, they're usually the ones doing it. Yeah. When I heard some Gojira in 2007, I was like, Jesus Christ. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. From Mars to Sirius changed (laughs) my life. Same here. It's funny, on that album, I actually saw them on that tour with textures supporting and I walked out because at the time I didn't get it. <laughs> wow. What? Nice. I was there for textures. And then when I heard Gajira, it was like, oh, it's just like a heavier Metallica. I'm leaving. How can you see that band live and not get it? That's crazy. This is 2007, I think it was. So it was literally probably just as that album came out. But then saw him again. And I was like, oh, I am a fucking idiot. Right, 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 right. <laughs> At least he came around. I heard Chaos Fear, Meshuggah, 
in probably 2002. And I was like, every song sounds the same. Yeah. I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't, I did not get it at all. Yeah. It happens. It's kind of the same thing we were talking about with like a life once lost, you know, or like bands that were, that were, they were doing something before it made sense to everybody. Like Gojira has been a really sick band for a really long time. And I feel like just in the past two or three years have they really gotten the recognition they've, they've deserved. Yeah. I think like if you go back to the way of all flesh, it was released on a fairly small record label, uh, listenable records, which were out of France or I think. Yeah. They're French. Yeah, they had quite a lot of good bands on them, like Soil Work and other bands. But yeah, I think that that record was the real beginning of the noticeability, the way of all flesh. That record still, to me, is the best one. It's fucking unbelievably good. I like Mars is Serious the best. Yeah, Mars is Serious for me too. Flying Whales. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Flying Whales. Hey, you know. I remember we were leaving for our first US tour in 2006, and our merch guy put on from Mars to Sirius. And I'm not even, I think it maybe. I'm pretty sure it was that tour. And that was it. It was like, we're leaving for tour and I'm hearing this band for the first time. And it literally changed my life. I remember listening to that all tour long, learning how to do the fucking squeals, you know, the, the what, what do you call those? What do you even call it? The, the, the Gojira pick. It's harmonic scrapes, I think. What'd you call Harmonic scrapes. There's got to be a cooler name for it. I like to call them squelches. I don't know what they're called. They're either. called rakes, aren't they? Rakes. Oh, harmonic yeah, rakes. Rake. Yeah, rakes. There we go. Yeah, those things. I'm yeah, just learning all that stuff. Like it's one of those things. I I remember hearing it and just being like, I can never forget that moment of just being like, what the fuck? This is amazing. I had that similar feeling when I first heard Iron Dissonance. Oh yeah. Do you remember? Uh, so I the, the first album I heard was Breathing Is Irrelevant, which is the first record. But I remember when Solace came out, and there's a song on that record called OASD, and it is so heavy, so disgustingly heavy. And they do like there's a couple of noises that they make on that record, like they they pick scrape behind the bridge and stuff, and it sounds so. It sounds like yeah the end of the world. They played in my basement in 2003. No shit. What? <laughs> I had a party when I was trying to get my studio off the ground, my local studio that was in my parents' house back then. And uh, so my parents were out of town and I threw a party and invited the entire metal scene and had free drugs yeah. and uh, free drinks. <laughs> nice. That's how I got everybody there. Well, And uh, Arsis, Arsis and uh, Ion Dissonance were on their first tour ever. It was the first time Ion Dissonance was ever in the U.S. And that was their first time playing in Atlanta. It was my first time hearing them. And it was like, holy fuck, what the hell is this? This is insanity. Canadians, man. Yeah. It's the shame Seriously. that those first two records, uh, the production isn't great. Because I think if it was in the production that they did on the the two records following, then those two records would have got them a lot more recognition because it is literal chaos, those two first records. It's chaos. <laughs> so I think you're right that there's going to be a band that comes out that hasn't been invented yet that will give people that same what the fuck is going on feeling. I'm excited for it. I believe in it. I'm all about music of the future. I try not to bash on anything that's going on, new stuff. It's like, I believe there's somebody out there that's going to do something that's going to just destroy us all and just make us rethink everything (laughs) always. Which is a great thing. Yeah, it's got to be. 
Yeah. Can we talk about your Patreon a little bit? Of course. Because we're talking about writing and where that all comes from, but you're right with your fans on there, right? Well, what's that? There's a tier on my Patreon. So I have a tier where I do live streams for my patrons, and then I have a tier that I write music with a maximum of eight people. Sounds like already a lot of people. I don't have eight people yet. Right now I have three. I put eight because it's like if Slipknot's got nine people, then I guess that should be like the max I could do in a band. (laughs) So it's really like I'm writing songs that I come up with weird ideas where like the first song I wrote with the, with the Patreon band was I wrote a song that is all pick scrapes and dive bombs, a hundred percent pick scrapes and dive bombs. Nothing else. Nothing else. I mean, there's bass and there's drums. Oh no. But I mean on guitar, nothing else. Yeah. Nothing else. Nothing else. And there's even like, there's even a guitar solo that's just pick scrapes and dive bombs. And trust me, <laughs> trust me when you, when, when you, you, you laugh at the idea, but when you hear it, you're like, actually, this is pretty fucking catchy. So like when it comes down to back to, you know, what started me playing guitar and music is just like, I want to write good songs and be able to write good songs. So even if I'm just doing a pick scrape and a, a dive bomb song, I want it to be catchy and sick. But, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm coming up with weird ideas and writing them with the Patreon band and kind of doing them as and I perform them on the, the live streams, shout out the members that are in the band and, you know, kind of just give insight on, you know, writing, writing music, even if it's just silly, weird ideas. You know, I don't, I, I don't want it to be too serious where like we have to write some, like the most meaningful song that's ever existed. It's more like just fun and kind of a creative experiment on like, you know, how cool can we make a song? The next song I'm doing is writing a song that's all pinch harmonics. <laughs> Zach Wilde's already done that. Well, Zach Wilde's been doing it for a long time. Well, this is what's funny. <laughs> this is what's funny is I did the pick scrapes and dive bombs and Gary Holt is like, oh yeah, dude, this shit sounds badass. And I'm like, you know, the guitar player of Slayer Exodus pick scrapes and, and yeah, dive course. bombs. It makes sense. You know, he, 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 he recognized <laughs> that I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a pinch harmonic song and maybe Zach Wilde will, will, will like this one. <laughs> <laughs> it really is kind of a creative experiment. Like what, what kind of weird ideas can we actually make a song that makes sense and is fun and still entertain people. One of my, one of the Patreon band members, uh, he's like, we should write a song that's all minor seconds. And I'm like, oh, it's not a bad idea. Let's try that. Just make it the most dissonant, but catchy, weird song. It's a way for me to interact with, with my fans and actually, you know, show them how, you know, how I come up with songs and come up with ideas. And it's been super fun. I mean, also being able to sit with somebody and if they have an idea, they get super stoked because they'll send me over a riff and then I'm playing their, their part. We actually have a drummer now and he's actually going to record drums. So I don't have to program all the drums, which is awesome. Sick. Yeah. It's pretty much a glorified creative experiment and joke at the same time, but we're getting the, my personality out on it and trying to get the other members in, in the band to like put their personality into these, these silly ideas. It's amazing. It actually sounds really cool. <laughs> it really sounds like you're making the most of the situation. Well, yeah. I mean, I also know that I get, I get a lot of people that, you know, hit me up and they want to like try to work on music with me, you know? And I don't know, I don't really know how to like say like, I, I can only work on so much at a time. So I kind of came up with this Patreon band is like, if you really want to work on music with me, like let's make something that isn't serious, something super fun. And, uh, you know, I'll record it. If they're recording on it, like I give them the track and it's like, here, you can use this. You can, you can, you know, 
you're, we're in a band together, you know, like that's, this is how it is. It's cool <laughs> to see how, how happy people get about it too. Cause you know, I get to, I get to hang out with people that it's like, maybe they don't have people that they don't have band members. They can't find people to play in a band with. So then I'm giving them an opportunity to actually be in a band. It feels good to hang out with some of the, some of the people that it's like, you want to be in a band so bad, but you can't find people to play with you. This actually sounds pretty similar to what I do on Riff Hard for it's a section called Riff Rescue. So I get them to send in a riff and then live on air, I will write to their riff in different directions in which they could go. Some of it comes out pretty fucking insane sounding. Yeah. I've seen some, (laughs) I've seen some of the little previews that you post on, on Instagram and that shit is super badass. It's scary though at the same time, because it's live. And there's one time when I'm going to totally fuck it. It's inevitable. You know, it's an inevitability where it's going to be really shit. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel guilty. People will forgive you though. But I think people understand the nature of live streams and that shit can go wrong. At least in my experience, like I remember we were doing Nail the Mix once. Bring me the rise of Dan Lancaster. It was a big one. I mean, we were like at Sphere or NRG at some huge studio and it was like the live streams going it was Easter 2018 or 17. All the internet in LA just went out. And then... Oh, fuck. Yeah, nobody was going to fix it because it was Easter. So, you know, we've got like a couple thousand people just who were paying for that and suddenly were gone. After like 90 minutes, we just were like, we'll just record this and upload it. And we let them know what happened and no, no complaints, zero. I thought that maybe some people would have been pissed. Nobody was pissed. I don't know. I think people are understanding that shit happens when it comes to streaming. Especially on the internet. Or the opposite. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, same thing though. Like, Brown, you're saying like, inevitably you're going to fuck that shit up one time. You know, like, I already know. It's like in a two or three hour session that I'm writing with the Patreon band, like there's bound to be times where it's like, well, I just don't have any good ideas right now. <laughs> you know, like this, this isn't, this, it's not, it's, it's not happening right now. Today was a wash, but that's also the way that it is when you're in a band or you are a creative, yep. you know, sometimes you just, your exactly. ideas aren't the ones, you know, that you, you gotta, you gotta be making music every single day and not everything's going to fucking work. So speaking of that being creative and writing sounds like that is kind of your focus. Like how often do you do it? Do you sit down and just write every day and either it's cool or it's not, or is it goal oriented? Like the band's going to record an album. So I need to come up with at least ideas for 10 songs or like, how do you go about it? Suicide silence. When it's time to write, we all come together and we write together. And if there's things that people bring to the table, then they bring it that they wrote on their own. But yeah, I write, I write all the time. You know, I got some stuff that I want to work on today. I try to work on stuff every day. It's sometimes I get stuck in like a, not stuck, but sometimes I'll have like a day of just practice where it's just like, you know, damn, I was playing guitar for seven hours yesterday and I didn't write anything. If I'm not coming up with shit that I like within the first 30 minutes, I will probably stop the writing session for the day. I know when I'm on a good one and I'm not thinking about it too hard and it, and shit starts to fly. I look at writing music and practicing almost in the same kind of thing. You know, I practice guitar every day and I try to come up with like at least a riff, at least something just, just to always keep it flowing. I've always wanted to write a 60 second song for a day 
like until you can't do it anymore, you know, just as like an exercise. I've always wanted to do that. The other thing is I play music. Like I I sing, I write weird shit, dude. No, that's also on my Patreon too. If you want to go <laughs> onto my Patreon and join my riff journal and listen to the, the shit that like I'm afraid to show people because it's like, this is not metal and this is really fucking weird <laughs> shit. Like I got some- Is it outsider music? Outsider music? What is outsider music again? I know what that is. What is that? Someone's told me about this. <laughs> Outsider music is uh, music made by people who are not really a part of society. <laughs> they don't like go by any of the rules, like tuning in a certain way. Okay, no, it's not outsider music. <laughs> it's like they'll be like from the, for, like there's this one band, outsider music band that came from like the mountains in West Virginia and they had no contact with the outside world. And their songs were always like, super out of tune but they were always out of tune the exact same way so they just heard it that way which is really weird to people who are used to hearing things in tune the way that we hear them it sounded totally off but every single time they played it it was exactly the same so obviously it was intentional so yeah outsider music is outside of society basically <laughs> i'm not that outside of society i think i'm still a part i think i'm still human oh my, I'm, I'm i guess i'm human my stuff that i i write that isn't just guitar i have a charango which is like a, a different kind of lute it's like a 10 string lute from south america that i really like to play and yeah like I've always been afraid to share like my actual singing because I play in a fucking death metal band or death core, whatever you want to call it. And like me doing any kind of clean singing or anything like that is stuff that it's just like, I only want to share that with people that are that like really want to see this side of me, you know? You know, there's, there's, there's other, there's other aspects of my, yeah. of my music that I'm just like, you know what? The world ain't ready for that shit. The world don't want that shit. You know, that's, that's, I, I'm not, I don't know about that. It's because you're trying to be brutal and then you go, la, 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 thinking it kind of the perception, isn't it? It doesn't add up, you know, <laughs> there is a nice group of my supporters and like my fans of me, that's like, I've tested it and shown them things and, and like, they get it. They understand like where I'm coming from. But if you don't know who I am, you're just like, oh yeah, Suicide Sounds are super brutal. I know nothing about anybody in the band. And then you were to hear something, you'd, you'd be like, what the fuck is this shit? You know, <laughs> it's more, uh, I hesitate to say it's fucking world music, but it's like, you know, I've, I, I had a whole project where I worked on some stuff that's uh, every song is like an emotion or a mood. And it was a, I was kind of I wrote a little bit of a concept record. and It was just like a, a period of time in my life where I was just in a really weird spot and some some strange, depressing stuff, some kind of uh, some cleansing, softer, smooth kind of feels. Lots of different instruments, percussion, just weird shit, man. When it comes to just writing music like I'm all about what am I feeling in that time? You know, not every day am I writing metal, you know, I'm, I'm just, if there's something that I got to get out, like maybe to encourage people out there, it's just like, not everything you're going to do is going to sound really good, but it's necessary in your process to get all this stuff out. So that when you do get to the point where you're like, this is what I, this is what I'm all about. This is me. Like you've gotten all this stuff out you know what it feels like to be unleashing your power, I guess. I think George Harrison said that you got to write the first 150 shitty songs to get to the good ones. I kind of agree. I think that the more you create stuff, the higher the probability is that you're going to come up with something cool. 
I think that people who write very sparingly, they better be a genius because they're not giving themselves very many chances to come up with something sick. But if they make it part of like just a daily ritual, just I'm going to make something, there's just way more chances. I, I just, I think a lot of people just don't do the thing they want to do enough to come up with cool stuff. I would agree. I think with most good writers, there's like a huge chunk that's crap always. I doubt that there's too many people who like a hundred percent of their ideas are usable. Totally. Yeah. I've always kind of looked at myself as like, I'm no virtuoso. I'm just another dude playing music. You kind of have to look at what you're creating, you know, from an outside perspective and be able to admit like that sucks or like, this is not how I want to represent myself. You know, before we wrote the black crown, we wrote almost an entire record and, and tossed it. Just weren't feeling it. We knew it wasn't what our third record needed to be. You know, we, we had, we had written two records, you know, we saw the progression and we wrote seven songs or eight songs and we did it all in about a month and we took some time off. And then in that time off, like I talked to everybody candidly in the band it was like, Hey, is this, do, do you like this? Is this really what, you know, is this, this, the direction we want to go. And pretty much everybody said the same thing, but they didn't want to say it. And when we were all together, cause it was like, we had all worked on it <laughs> so much, you know? And it's just like, we all just decided like, no, well, let's, let's toss all this and start, start from the top. So I'm all, I'm all about that. I think that that's a rookie mistake, man. Not what you're saying. I think a rookie mistake is sticking with the same songs too long and not being afraid to toss shit. I, I think that one of the best things you could possibly do is be comfortable tossing things out that just aren't on par for whatever reason. I guess you had to get through those seven or eight shitty songs to get to Black Crown. Yeah. Which was sick. But the fact you were willing to throw them out, it says everything. It was risky, dude. It was super risky because, I mean, not everybody agreed with or like in our in our circle, you know, showing it to our manager, showing it to, you know, people in our circle. Everybody, you know, said it was good. You know, they liked it, but it's like, for us, it was just like, nah, like we got to do something better. And admittedly, we went and we stayed up in a cabin in Big Bear, California. We got a cabin to write in. We built a, home, a studio and we stayed there for a month and we wrote music. And it took that time in the cabin to write those songs. But I think what it did for us as friends and as a band was what we needed because we then learned that it's like we can write something and, you know, admit that it sucks and not make it have to be what it is. Because at that point, really, everything we had written basically had made it onto every single one of our records. You know, like what we wrote for The Cleansing was what we recorded on The Cleansing. What we wrote for No Time to Bleed is what we put on it. So when it came to that, it's like, oh, we've done this before. You know, we got to know each other even better as 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 a band and as, as people. So we still talk about it, you know, like we needed that time in Big Bear to learn more about what it is to be happy with what we're creating. Yeah. And I guess nobody on the team can actually know artistically, it, like only you can know if it's not really good enough, the people creating it are the ones who will have the feeling of, yeah, I'm sure it didn't suck, suck. I'm sure that like it would have been decent. Like I doubt that they were horrible songs. It just sounds like it wasn't on the level that you wanted it to be. 
Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is I bet we still have that drive somewhere and we can go back and listen to all those right now so we could actually be the judge of it. I, I've actually, I haven't <laughs> thought about those tracks in a while. I wonder where they are. <laughs> you, you, you deleted them from your computer. <laughs> probably, probably. Well, dude, there's some really funny shit we did up there in the cabin too. We wrote a rap song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We, we have we have a whole entire rap song. My lyrics were the ingredients to a, the cereal box that I had, and I just wrapped them in a certain <laughs> syllabical way. It was when Chopped and Screwed was super big, like the 3-6 Mafia stuff, and I think Mitch was doing like this 3-6 Mafia, like low-tune fucking Chopped and Screwed voice. Some weird shit happened up there. We needed that shit. It is definitely up to, you know us as the people that are making it. It's like, if you've written the music and you don't get inspired for that to be shared with people and, you know, show where yeah, you, where where you got to represent for the next two years. Exactly. This is who I am. Like, I remember, I remember really not feeling it. I remember just being like, no, like, I really hope that this, that this isn't, this isn't what it's going to be. And I still get that feeling. We you know when we write music, if there's any of that little bit of feeling, it's like, no, no, no. Like I'm, I'm, I'm either chucking this whole thing out or I'm rethinking this entire thing. and I'm going to make this better. Which, you know, that's, that's still, that's still my process. You know, I have so, I just, I'll riff and throw things down so much. And probably for me, it's like one in, you know, 20 ideas are the things that end up being used for suicide silence. It's like a lot of my stuff, it's just, you know, I need it. I need it in my process to just get it out and be able to weed out where I'm going and what, what I think is going to be fucking sick. I'm a less is more dude. Like I love shred and I love technical stuff, but I'm all about coming up with the thing that's just like, I want guitar players to listen to it and go, damn, why didn't I think of that? That's where I'm at all the time. I'm just curious, when you ditched all those songs and then you started working on the batch of songs that did make it, what was different? Like in the vibe or like in the approach, like what changed? So instead of, because we were all living in the same house and waking up and working on music together, instead of trying to get a song to happen while everyone was together. What me and Garza did, our other guitar player, we would meet up usually, you know, maybe two days a week that we weren't with the band and we would just come up with riff ideas and we would label the riff idea. We would name it something, you know, we would name it like, oh, this is the Morbitalica riff or this is the, the Pantera breed or like whatever it kind of reminded us of. We would label it, name it and have a relationship with the, with the riff. And we'd be like, is this an intro? Is this a verse? Is this a chorus? Is this a bridge? We would start figuring out what, like, where do we see this in this? And before we even would structure music, we would start just having, building a relationship with the, with the, the, the riffs and the ideas. Maybe it would even be three riffs in a row. We're like, okay, this is definitely an intro. I've never heard anyone say that, building a relationship with the riffs. Could you elaborate on what that means? So when you have like, you have a relationship with riffs that you love to play that are other people's songs, you know, like, you know, for me, first time I ever played in an arena, you know, and I'm at a sound check and I'm like, oh man, like I get to play in an arena. I get to sound check right now. I'm thinking about what riff do I have like an arena relationship with? What riff is the riff I want to play when I am playing in an arena, you know? And honestly, I don't really remember what it was. It was probably like Dead Skin Mask or like South of Heaven or something like this, like a big, like epic opening fucking riff, you know? Um, but like the relationship that you have with your own riff, where am I playing this? What is it doing when I play it? How do I feel about it? 
you know, what do I want people to feel when I'm playing this riff? Like, that's what I mean by a relationship with the riff. It's just this riff right now. There's no drums yet or anything. It's just an idea. But what is it going to be? And how do I see this being a part of me forever if this becomes a song? It's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I've never heard. I've never really heard it described that way, but it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the power of the riff is what fucking matters in metal. So it's like if you're writing a riff, like it's that riff, but like it's got to stand alone. Like you strip away the whole entire song, the drums, the vocals, everything. Can that guitar riff be played by itself and have people be like, all right, that's sick. That's trying to build that fucking pyramid of of a, of a riff that's going to exist forever. You know, that's definitely the way that I try to approach writing a riff always. I, I try to have a relationship with it where it's like, I want somebody to, I want someone to listen to this and this be their first riff they ever learn. I want someone to play, I want someone to listen to this and be like, I want to play guitar because of that riff, you know? And it could be something as simple as, you know, I think like unanswered, it's the stupidest riff. It's literally just going two, one, open, two, one, open, dun, 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 dun. But it's so stupid that it works that any anybody that's never played guitar, they're like, you know what? Damn, I want to play that chunk, chunky, stupid, heavy ass riff. I was just uh, feeling that way about the opening riff to two steps. That that riff's crazy. Yeah, yeah, like that's that's the that's kind of the building building the pyramid. You know, build build that thing that's going to last forever, and people are going to look at it and be like, damn, who built that? It's a really good way to look at it. When you're working with another guitar player. How does it work that you guys come up with a riff together and not have it be just like noise? Because, you know, like two guitar players, metal guitar players in a room with high gain amps, low tune guitars coming up with stuff. It can be pretty chaotic and hard to come up with stuff. I think that's why a lot of people like to write metal alone because it's just it's so noisy and like hard to hard to focus. How do you guys like connect in a way that that's actually productive and gets to those riffs. You know, I think plain and simple, it has come down to years of, uh, of chemistry that we've developed. It's not something that comes, that comes overnight, you know, and like me and Garza, there's definitely like a left and a right side of one single brain. That is the, the guitars of suicide silence. I'm more the technical side. He's more the simple side. I will play something. Maybe we're not necessarily playing together, but, um, I'll play something and then he'll grab it and make it even more. This is the meat and potatoes of what you just did. Let's try doing it like this. You know, and he simplified so many things that I that would have been way overcomplicated and made something where it's just like it doesn't need to be, you know, that far out. And then also on the other side of things, you know, maybe Garz is playing something. It's like, hey, dude, if we, you know, add these couple little dilly dallies right here, it's going to fucking grab on. You know, it's going to it's dilly gonna, dallies, you know, hey, you know, whatever, whatever the fuck, dude. You know, I'm dude. And especially when I'm writing music, like whatever language I'm speaking, it just turns into fucking flibbity flobs and fucking dirgats and just weird shit. <laughs> I feel like writing with another guitar player it's still, it's again, back to what I, when I first started playing in bands, it's like, I want to listen to what you're doing and make it more what you're trying to do. Like, I, I want to get to the understanding of like, maybe the same thing, trying to build a relationship with that riff. Like you, you are trying to do something right now and maybe I can help you relate to what you're trying to do better. And, and that's, that's always, 
that's always what I've tried to do with, with Garza or anybody that I'm playing with. That's almost approaching it like a producer. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's, I think from working on records with producers, I love working with a producer. You know, I love getting, having someone, you know, almost like a, like a psychoanalyst of music. They're sitting there with you and trying to figure out how to, how to make you a better you. That is the coolest thing. And I try to do that with, you know, the whole band. I think everybody tries to do that in our band. Everybody's trying to, it's like, I know how Dan Kenny is on bass and I want to make Dan Kenny like the sickest bass player ever. And I know how Garza is on guitar and I want to make him like the sickest Garza guitar player there is. And, uh, you know, to Eddie on vocals, everybody, it's just how do we amplify exactly who you are and make you again, build the relationship that you have with your instrument and your, you know, creative vein. How do we, how do we help each other do that? It's like trying to make the best version of you basically in each of you individually. Always. And yeah, that's what a producer does for sure. A good producer. That's so interesting, man. Cause sometimes in bands, it seems like people are so focused on just outshining people or making it me, 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 me. I think that it's rare to hear of a band where the attitude is let's make the team as uh, sick as possible. Yeah. Well, that that's came from every record that we've done. There's always a couple of songs that we all know we came together on in a way that is different than the rest of the record. Some songs, it's like, all right, that song was more Garza. This song was more me. These couple songs were literally all of us came together really, really well. And those are the songs that people love the most. So, and, and it's, it's, it's how it's worked. Every record, the ones that we figure out how to lift each other up and we're writing a song that it's like, when Alex is going to go play this song on drums, like, Alex loves playing this song on drums and he's fucking going to be able to smash it. And every song that has made an effect, you know, on our career are the ones that they blend all of our styles really, really well. And that's what like, you know, lights the fire for us to continue writing music. We know that there's still areas that we haven't been able to, let's say, you know, artistic areas. We haven't been able to exploit of each other's abilities. You know, like we want it, we can bring out these things that, you know, we don't even really know what they are yet because we haven't done them yet. They're still there. Still got to still gotta bring them out. One last topic I want to bring up because I don't want to take up your whole day, but I'm curious about this. We were talking about producers. You've worked with a bunch and there's a lot of great metal producers out there. So, you know, there's lots of different options. What is it about a producer that makes you say, this is the dude we're going with. This person gets it it's a pretty easy thing to read someone's energy with us. We've sat down with tons of producers and had interviews and talked to them about writing a record. And usually you can just kind of tell if there's someone that's there to try to get a gig, you know, if they're just trying to, trying to lock in a gig and, and, you know, secure some work, it's pretty easy to tell if someone is just on that tip. Every producer that we've ever worked with has been someone that we've talked to them and it's like, okay, this guy wants to work on our record. This guy wants to do a record with us. And not every, you know, not everybody is that guy. Evitz was the, the dude where I remember sitting down with him where it's like, oh my God, I've never met somebody that wants to work with us so bad. Like he wants, he wants to do our record, you know? And that's why we've done so many records with him. But that's what it really comes down to is like someone that they want to build a relationship with you 
and get to know you and, and, you know, figure out how to, how to, how to make our ideas above and beyond better than we could have ever done it without them. Cause you know, as, over the years, you know, you learn to produce yourself. You learn to be, you know, the band produces themselves and every band is like, Oh, one of these days we're just going to produce our own shit. We don't need a producer. Everybody says it. You know, when you find that dude where you're like, damn, like we need this guy involved. Like he's got the, he's got the energy and he's, he's ready to fucking slam it out. That's really what it's all about. Finding the dude that wants, they want to build a pyramid. Awesome, dude. Well, Mark, I think it's a good place to stop it. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been awesome getting to meet you and awesome getting to talk to you. Hell yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. It's lovely. I know that the listeners can't see, but I've been able to see John Brown and Aol this whole time. And that's, and it's great. <laughs> nice talking to Aol and seeing John Brown for the first time in forever. Hello, man. <laughs> I've missed talking to you, man. We're going to make this a more regular occurrence for sure. Cold call FaceTime, dude. I'm I'm over here, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you won't won't wait nine years this time. Uh, it's not been nine years, but yeah, definitely. You know, you know how it is. Just you just you know you fall out. Of yes, touch I, I know busy. exactly how it is. Yeah. <laughs> Quarantine's actually been great. I've been able to catch up with tons of people. So same, dude. Hell yeah, guys. Well, and again, I love I love what Riff Hard is doing. It's super cool, and I love seeing all the, all the shit that's Thank going you. on, so I'll keep making weird comments on your posts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, uh, man, you're going to have to send me that album of yours as well. Oh, the, fun, the, the, the weird one? Yeah, no, I'm really intrigued <laughs> to hear it now. <laughs> so am I. Sure, yeah. Sick. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, that was a cool episode. He's a sick dude, isn't he? So much fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool, too, that you guys have known each other so long. It's like I was saying on, I think another one of the podcasts, I think one of the cool things about doing a podcast is getting a chance to catch up with people that you know, but that you never really get to talk to otherwise. But if you see them at NAM, it's like a 10 minute conversation or 15 minutes at most. It's not like two hours in depth. Exactly. Like even if you go to one of their shows, it's like you get to see them for a couple of minutes beforehand. If they aren't driving off for like 10 hours the next day, you might get to see them a little bit after the show. But yeah, generally it's always just five minutes here and there, especially with the distance. You know, Mark's an American and I live in the middle of nowhere in England. So it's like... Fucking Americans. (laughs) I really liked his philosophy on riffs and writing like i can identify with it a lot i feel like more people need to think about what kind of effect what they're writing has on people and how it's going to feel to people because ultimately if if that part's not there it's just notes it is it's all about how it makes you groove isn't it it's like that's the ultimate goal of music making you move and making you groove and that's exactly what he was concentrating on i kind of feel like maybe his dad being a you know a really good jazz musician might have gravitated him towards that direction a little bit you know maybe he saw his dad being a jazz musician as his job so he still wanted to pick up an instrument but maybe he saw it in a different light because of that i am positive that his musical upbringing had something to do with it. It's interesting because you hear Suicide Silence and, you know, they're fucking brutal as hell. The thing about them is they're super catchy. Like they have so many riffs that are just like perfect. They're super simple, but just perfect. And I think it's easy to take that for granted until you realize what goes into it. Because try writing a riff like that, that's just super simple, but fucking awesome. And I actually think in some ways that that's a lot harder 
than writing very technical music because you can't hide behind the technique. You can't hide behind superficially impressing people. Like every single note and its placement has to be perfect in its uh, intention, basically. I would completely agree. It's actually way harder for me to write more simple music, mainly because I'm a guitar player. <laughs> and that's what I want to do. I want to gravitate towards all those more, more difficult sort of things. But yeah, I ultimately writing the catchiest thing you can while being as simple as possible. It's actually quite difficult. It's very difficult. And it's not that there's anything wrong, in my opinion, with like technical music. There's a lot of great technical music. Opeth comes to mind. It's being technically tasteful, isn't it? Oh, that's so tasteful. But like, you know, there it's possible to have stuff with a lot of notes and a lot of changes and a lot of a lot of shit going on that's still great music. So I'm not saying that simple is necessarily better because simple, there's some shitty simple music out there. But what I do think is that writing that perfect simple riff like Pantera Walk or- Yeah, that's the first one that came to my mind actually when yeah, you said that, you know, that but down Or sad but true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Writing riffs like that, that are just like, it's not about thought, it's about sound, feel and- effect and uh the emotional reaction that it causes in people that's that's the real shit very few people are actually capable of doing that yeah and the people that are the bands that are absolutely fucking massive there's no surprise also what i thought was uh was really cool was that uh i don't believe that it's ever an accident that a band gets really big and this conversation confirmed it they have a vibe for being like you know cool bro kind of band. And yeah, I know they like to party and all that stuff, but obviously they've always been super fucking serious about success, knew when to step on the gas and how to step on the gas. And I think he doesn't give himself enough credit. He was saying he didn't know what he was doing. And I understand that when you're young, maybe there is an element of that, but they certainly knew what the fuck they were doing a lot more than just about any other band in that entire scene. Like there was a point where they were the biggest deathcore band on earth. They think they might still be, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. And also one thing that I noticed about what how he was talking is that they're all completely pulling in the same direction, which I think is a massive thing that needs to happen with every single band in order for them to actually ascend to that level. That's why my band didn't work out. Yeah. I remember watching a Slipknot DVD came out in like 2005, something like that. And there were interviewed on it and, um, they were talking about that sort of thing. And they were saying that part of why they've gotten so far is because nobody in the band wants to be like that guy that holds things back. I don't know how it is now, but like in those days when they were like the most savage fucking band ever, like, you know, 1999 through 2005, basically, uh, they were saying that the band was like a gang. They all had the exact same goal. And, nobody slacked like nobody let anybody else down they just would not allow it and when you have that many people going for the same thing and they're talented too you see what happens exactly and that's what i think that's what you've seen in the bands that uh well it's definitely what i've seen in the bands that have made it really successful another band that always springs to mind with that mindset for me is while she sleeps i'm not familiar with them but i'd like to learn you should our first ever tour Monuments, they were opening for the tour package. We were main support. And a band called Carter City was um, headlining 
And while she sleeps now, play to thousands of people, all pulling in the same direction. They built their own warehouse. They have a rehearsal place warehouse thing where they record. They're constantly working on it and all of them pulling in the same direction, which is why it's worked because people can pick up on that shit as well. And if the band isn't all on board with it, like a military unit almost, if it's not like that, then like he was talking about early conversations with Mitch, like where they were asking, are you sure you're not going to bail the moment this gets hard? You know, if the band, if they're not all unified like that, that is what will happen. The moment it gets hard and it will get hard, people are going to start bitching out. They're not going to want to take opportunities. They're not going to do what's required and what's required to make it happen in any genre of band to, to make it to a successful spot is a gargantuan effort. Yeah. And you only get as far as your weakest link. Yeah, exactly. Man, I have seen so many bands that had potential just not go far because of those types of issues, like just lineup issues. Yeah. So speaking of writing, I really do like his approach to it. And I think that guitar players should focus on it more. I think a lot of them focus on technique mainly, which is cool. Technique's great. But if you're not writing cool stuff, there's really no point to the technique. And But I think some people kind of need help with writing, at least at first. They don't know how to get over writer's block. So I feel like Riff Rescue is a really, really good solution for that to at least help people get going and help them understand what's possible with their songs. I think like a lot of people don't, like when they go to write riffs, they see them as individual entities. They don't really think about like, how can I take this piece of music and manipulate it in as many different ways as possible? And what I mean by that is even just trying things in a different octave can drastically change the meaning of those notes. Like it's the difference between me speaking to you, me whispering and me screaming the same words. They are, It's the same words, but they all have a different sort of timbre and expression to them. And I think you can achieve this by playing the same notes in, in like different orders. They can be in different octaves or even in a relative point of the scale, even if it's the same rhythmic pattern and the same intervals between the notes, it really, really changes a lot of things. And no one really thinks about doing this with their music, especially in metal I've seen. I mean, there's a couple of bands that definitely do it. Dream Theater always springs to mind and they do that between albums and it's uh, the motif style of writing where you're just trying to manipulate it in as many different ways as possible. Um, and that's kind of what I'm approaching with Riff Rescue. I'm showing uh, the members on Riff Hard all the different directions in which they could take these small pieces of music. And quite a lot of it has come out absolutely fantastic. I'm actually quite happy about that because obviously it's live <laughs> and I don't really know what's going to happen. Tell me how it works. Like they write something and then you take it and expand on it? Yeah, so they'll send in a riff. There's a section on the website, Riff Rescue. You can submit um, a riff, a full song with tabs or a video of you playing it. And then I'll go through um, all the submissions. And the one that sort of hits me is the one I usually work on for that Riff Rescue. And yeah, I'll basically take the parts that really speak out to me and just try and manipulate them in as many different ways as possible. And you know what I think is cool about that is... It's not about having John Brown rewrite your songs because uh, that's kind of not realistic, 
right? You're not going to be a rewriter for every <laughs> single riff hard student on earth, but it's a very good thing to see what the possibilities are. You know, if you go through that, it'll open your mind to what you can do in the future when you don't know where to take a riff. And one thing I've noticed is lots of great songs really only have like three or four ideas in them. And this is true across tons of styles, even progressive music that, uh, that is super complicated. Typically there's something cohesive in most songs that is very simple, but it's just variations on a theme. And I think that that's where a lot of people go wrong. And so to have one of your riffs taken and then manipulated all over the place, it can really help you understand what you can do next time. Exactly. It's just finding things that work individually for you. So it takes these riffs through a bunch of different formulas that I will go through in a process of trying to expand on an idea. And these are just musical expressions, things we learned when we were in school, like, you know, putting rests in, like taking notes out and replacing them for rests or doubling the length of the note or doing it so that you play two notes instead of one. You know, really simple stuff like that, but it really drastically changes everything about those parts. But it's still got the essence of the original idea, which is where what you were saying, you only really hear three or four ideas in most pop songs, not necessarily even that many sometimes. Sometimes it's two two parts <laughs> yep. and it sounds great. If we're going to be writing riffs as complicated as we do in this style of music, then at least, at least let's make them all relate so it is actually progressive and not riff salad. The riff salad thing, I only know of like a couple bands who can actually pull it off. Even the great crazy ass metal bands who you think it's riff salad, it's generally not. It's generally just a few different ideas that are varied and work really well together. There's a couple of riff salad bands that are okay, but man, I really do think that's a minority. I think so too. And it's quite interesting that we, that people think that riffs that don't relate to each other is progressive because actually it's the complete opposite of progressive. Progressive to me means you have an idea, it takes you through a story and then you get to a different essence of that idea where it still kind of relates to what's gone on before it. So yeah, progressive is that a riff salad just isn't progressive at all. In <laughs> Yeah. It's the opposite. It, I actually would call it lazy. Yeah. Cause instead of taking the idea and putting in the work to, uh, to see what it can become, just throw on another idea and then another idea and then another idea. And it's like, you just like, Cutting out random shit and throwing it together. It's weird. It is a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I've definitely done that at one stage. <laughs> Look, we've all done that and there's times when it's appropriate. But if your entire song is that or your entire album is that, it's probably going to suck. Probably. Or probably. it'll only uh, really appeal to a very small demographic of freaks. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, anyways, man, it's been sick. I had a lot of fun on this episode. I did too. Looking forward to the next one. I laughed a lot. So I'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.